Scripture says that a people who know their God will display strength and take action. What a great statement, right? The people who know their God will display strength and take action. One of the greatest tragedies then for the world is when the people of God forget who their God is and forget what He can do and thereby are unable to take any action. Exodus chapter 4, Yahweh is working a new work. It's a work of rescue and a work of deliverance. It's the paradigmatic work of salvation and deliverance in all of the Old Testament, surpassed only by that New Testament work of Christ who, who it pointed to, who fulfilled everything that it was meant to show us. This is a work uh, in keeping with God's promises to Abraham, to the patriarchs, and to the nation. Yahweh has told Abraham over and over, sorry, me, sorry told Moses uh, more than once. And Moses, Moses now at this point, standing at the burning bush, is this divinely preserved, sovereignly raised up, recently exiled servant, now being called and newly prepared. Yahweh has until now been talking with Moses at the burning bush, but at this point, he starts acting. He introduced himself as we looked at the passage last week. Hello, my name is Yahweh. Do you know me? You really need to get to know me. We should meet. Now this week, he shows not who I am, but here's what I can do. This is such a poetic passage at the burning bush. So many themes uh, weave their way through these words of the Lord. Discourse is teaching. Discourse tells us things. There is a time for discourse. But narrative, we need narrative too. Narrative shows us things. Discourse says this is the message Discourse shows us this is the message and what it looks like. This morning we come to the second half of the burning bush incident, and we come to a showing passage. It's a passage that has four very memorable actors who are all working together to dramatize God's message. I'm using the word actors in a way a little differently than what you might think, but I want to solidify these four images that are given here in this passage so that they will be memorable and rich and filled with all of the truth and glory that God has them here for us, because there's so much in this passage that we could take away, but I want to fixate on these four big themes that carry through. All four of our actors are going to appear together in the last two verses of the burning bush incident, the last two verses of our passage today, 16 and 17, as each has by that point played its role. So Moses here is at the, at the bush. Yahweh has spoken, and he's, making his, he's made his first recorded appearance in 430 years. I want to pick up at the beginning of chapter 4 today. We're really in the middle of the discussion we're going to begin by reading what is really the third exchange between Yahweh and Moses from 1 through 9, and then I'm going to jump to the closing verses, just going to read that, that part for the beginning. You with me? All right. Exodus 4, verse 1. Moses then said to the Lord, 
What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And then Yahweh said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand, grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it. There became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. The Lord furthermore said to him, now put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And then he said, put your hand into your bosom again. So he put his hand into his bosom again, and when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. But if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water which we take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Jump with me to verses 16 and 17. The Lord speaking says, Moreover, Aaron, speaking to Moses, he says, Moreover, Aaron shall speak for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. You shall take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. The hand, the staff, the sign, and the mouth. These are the four actors that dramatize the message that show what God can do. The first to appear, the first actor this morning, playing four characters in our passage, I give you the hand. The hand. We need to actually go back a few verses to see the flow and how important the hand is and to get the whole message that the hand dramatizes about God's deliverance. So if you will, flip back to chapter 3, verse 8. And notice there the hand, the first appearance of this actor as the hand of the Egyptians. If you're keeping notes or taking, keeping score at home, the hand of the Egyptians in 3.8. The Lord said to Moses there at the bush, so I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land. And on he goes, you go, wait a minute, I didn't see a hand there. It's because we're not reading in the Hebrew. My NAS translation has a little number there next to the word power, and maybe yours does as well. And it tells me in the marginal note that the word for power is the word hand. Yod in the Hebrew means hand or power. Those might seem like two different things, but in the English, we use uh, the word hand in much the same way, right? Is it not in your hand to do this, right? Is it not in your power? Oh, you are, you are under his hand, under his authority, and you can imagine. It's not a stretch. So in the same way, yod, literally meaning hand, but often metaphorically meaning power. First, we see this actor as the hand of the Egyptians. What role is the hand playing? The role of heavy affliction, the role of cruelty and oppressiveness, that's the hand of the Egyptians. The role of the hand here is similar to the role played by sin in our lives, it's similar to what we experience when we ourselves find ourselves given to sin, that it is cruel and oppressive, that it never delivers on what it promises. And we may find ourselves under heavy affliction. First, we see the hand of the Egyptians. 
But Israel is not without hope, and neither are we, because the actor's second role is as the hand of Yahweh. Notice next the hand of Yahweh. Jump down in chapter 3 to verse 19. The Lord telling Moses what's going to happen ahead of time, he says in 319, But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I shall do in the midst of it. And then after that, he will let the people go. You say, I see, I see the hand there once, but no, it's actually there twice. Because in my translation, the words under compulsion in verse 19 are a rendering of the Hebrew words under a strong hand. I know that the king of Egypt, Pharaoh will not let the people go except under a strong yod strong hand, and so I will indeed stretch out my yod, my power, and I will strike Egypt with my many wonders. What do we have here but a mighty persuasion? Pharaoh will be against letting go all of his free labor. He will be against setting free a bunch of people who really are in a situation that's working very well for him to bring him glory by his oppression of them, to make the nation look great. I know he won't let them go, not until I convince him, the Lord says. But I have an ability to persuade, so I will stretch out my hand, first the hand of the Egyptians, then next the hand of Yahweh. This is his sovereign hand, unfettered, this is his hand doing the work of deliverance of the people out from under their oppression and doing it through many works, promising ahead of time, this is going to be hard and it's going to get harder. In fact, I have designed even to harden his heart in order to demonstrate the power of my hand at work, he says. But he says in the end, these will persuade Pharaoh. What great news. Did you know that God can be persuasive? Have you found times in your life when God has been persuasive? You know, Scripture says that God rebukes and disciplines those he loves, so be earnest and repent. He can persuade us through rebuke, through discipline and correction of his children. But then Romans chapter 2 tells us also that it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. So he can also be persuasive through his tenderness and his gentleness, can't he? What a great God he is, able to persuade by whatever means he chooses. Thank God that he is God's sovereign to know how and when to do it. Sometimes I need to be brought up short and humbled. I need his firm and strong hand saying, oh, Lord God, look at the foolishness that I have reaped by my choices. And you are giving me exactly what I deserve. Look at your strong hand. I repent. Thank you for your kindness to persuade me. And other times I do foolishness. And he says, I love you. You're my child. Come home. I've given my son for you. You're mine. I'll never leave you. And I go, Lord, why? Why? How can you act this way? I repent. It's too much. You're too good. He can be persuasive. And that is our encouragement here. Pharaoh, probably the strongest human being on the face of the earth at this point, 
will dig in against Yahweh. But in the end, he will be persuaded. He will let the people go willingly. It will seem to he, him like absolutely the smartest thing he's ever thought of. In fact, he will command them to go. He will send them away. This is good news, the hand of Yahweh and his mighty persuasion. This is our encouragement because it's our security when we wander, isn't it? Ephesians 1.11 says that he works all things after the counsel of his will. Praise be to God. He works all things after the counsel of his will. I'm not smart enough to figure out the right way to do things, but I know that he is smart enough and he will work things according to his good counsel. He didn't ask my advice or opinion. He just knows. Thank you, Lord. His persuasion is our hope. He delivers. This is what he can do. Ah, but the hand is not done yet. This actor takes on a third role. Now we see the hand of the Israelites. Verses 21 and 22, still in chapter 3. I will grant this people favor, that's the Israelites, I'll grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and your daughters. Thus you will plunder the Egyptians. What is the third role that this actor plays that demonstrates the message? He plays the role of the hand of the Israelites. And what does that hand look like? Answer, full. Full hands. These who have been slaves in a foreign country for four centuries will walk out with all that they can carry on their backs and on their children and their satchels and on their donkeys, right? By the way, it will become a law in Israel that if a household has a Hebrew slave at the end of every six years, at the end of six years, he is to go free. And in that seventh year, when he is sent out free, there is a command, he shall not go out empty-handed. But you are to take from your vats and from your storehouse and from all of your goods and, and from your granary. And you are to fill him so that he goes out with hands full, just as the Israelites did after being set free after their time. Huh. His deliverance then is a deliverance. What good news that does not leave us empty, but leaves us full. But Lord, it will be hard. There's so much to get up and he's so much to give up. And he says, I know, my child, but if you will empty your hands and let me deliver you, I will fill your hands with more than you have ever known. See how the hand is acting out the message to tell us the might of this deliverer? Here is what I can do from under a hand, through my hand. So you have full hands. And finally, the hand plays his final role, the hand of Moses. Eight times in the opening nine verses of chapter 4. Just check it out in verses 1 and 2. What if they'll not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And then after that, he's going to do the whole hand thing, right? Isn't that cool? There's a lot of handing going on. And I don't think that it was unintentional. In fact, it's quite clear that the hand of Yahweh and the hand of Pharaoh 
are locked in a cosmic duel, right? So it's not just happenstance that this hand theme is being carried out. What is it then by the hand of Moses that this actor is dramatizing? He's dramatizing the fact that God has the ability to empower. Lord, but what if they won't believe or listen or they'll say he hasn't appeared to you? By the way, you can just track those three words. Hear, listen, he hasn't appeared. The Lord's going to come down in the next few verses and he's going to answer every one of those. Do this and they will believe and they will listen and they will say he has appeared to you. <laughs> I've heard your complaint, Moses. Let me just show you with your hand. Not because you can, but because I can. And I will empower you. What do you have there in your hand? I will work with that. You know what this sounds a little bit like? It's, uh, it, it just sounds a little bit like, okay, not a little bit like, very much like the Lord Jesus. And his disciples come to him and they say, Lord, the people are hungry. Send them away so that they can eat. And what does he say? You feed them. What, are you kidding me? What have you got? Uh, a couple fish and some loaves. Bring that here. Show me what you got. Bring what you have. I will work with that. Because it's not your power, it's mine. What a great encouragement. Yod is hand or power. It makes its first appearance as an oppressive power, one that rules over God's people. What are some of the powers that rule over us? What are some of the powers that rule over you and that rule over me? I'll mention just a couple this morning that came to mind prayerfully. Bitterness is one. That can rule over me. That can rule over you. Never been bitter? If you can say no this morning, and you, you can leave. In fact, write a book because we need it. I need it. This is uh, the sin of others often against us that may leave us offended, but in the end turns to sin that takes root in our own hearts. And it's so hard, right? This is one of those we, things we feel when we feel we've been wronged. And it can be an oppressive power, right? It can be a yod in our lives that we live under. Let me just throw out a different one, one of a very different flavor. How about prejudice? Have you ever felt that in your life? I have. Absolutely have. I hate to admit it, but I know I have as I stand before the Lord. It's... Maybe because you've been offended in the past by a certain group or kind of people, but then you meet another person of that camp or culture or class, and you say, oh, I know exactly how those kind are. This is a sin that we can carry with us that can rule over us, and it can destroy our souls, in addition to how it can bear fruit in its destruction of others. This is when we've been affirmed in our own little space, in our culture or class or camp. And boy, are we drawing up lines for our camps these days, aren't we? 
your, your media feed is engineered, right? You know this, don't you? Because you better know it. It's designed to feed you what people in your camp want to see. I don't care what your camp is. That's an apolitical statement. Whatever your camp is, your feed will feed you because it wants to keep feeding you and keep you hungry for more. You have got to know that. I have got to know that every time I go and I look. I'm going to be fed what I think is exactly right so that I can look at everybody else and go, they're so stupid. How could they even think that? I don't know anybody who thinks like that. That's because those people are talking to themselves and not you. And once we've been so affirmed in our own little place, then we find it easy. In fact, we find it virtuous to ignore, to discredit, and to dehumanize one another. This is just part and parcel of the human heart, right? This is as old as Adam and Eve, right? As old as Cain and Abel. Well, you can pick your own. What is the yod that might rule over you or over me? But here, see the message of the hand that delivers? The hand here shows us God's deliverance. It's only the hand of God that can overcome the power of our, our, power of our sin. It is the hand of God who is able to persuade the heart to where I not only maybe begrudgingly stop that sin, but actually sweetly, happily run from that sin and say, Lord, what a fool I've been, and I want to be yours completely, Lord. Lord, help me. If even Pharaoh can be persuaded to give up his free labor, then even my stubborn hearts can be persuaded to abandon myself to him, regardless of what costs I think there might be. And if I do, and if you do, what does the hand say next? Fullness, empowerment. This is what I come to offer you. You'll plunder the Egyptians. What have you got there? I'll use that. Only the hand of God can bring such a sweetness to make us pursue him, to change our affections from what we have loved, which is the death that kills us, to love that which is the life that he brings us. He changes a heart, and oh, praise God, you can persuade us, Lord, of that. You can provide fullness for the beleaguered sinner, and you can work through any willing vessel. This is what God can do. If this week you are prone to forget what he can do, then remember the hand. Peter writes and he says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. That's a good place to be. To see his hand to deliver and fill and raise you up. Well, that's the first actor in our passage. This actor leads us to the second immediately because as in verse 2, Moses is asked, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. So now we find the second actor, the staff. The staff will be appearing in two characters in our performance today. The first appearance of the staff, and I know this is going to be profound, but the first time the staff shows up as a staff. Got it? That's the first one, a staff. Verse 2, the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff, verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand, grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and he caught it and it became what? A staff 
That's the first appearance. It's a staff. What's the point? It's a very ordinary thing. But later on, the name of the staff is going to start to get transformed just a bit. Notice, if you caught it, and you probably didn't, I wouldn't have, how we read it in verse 17. By the end of our passage, the staff has a new name. You shall take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. Well, it's not just a staff. It's this staff. Well, that doesn't seem to be like a huge deal, Frank. If that's all you got for me this morning, I think I'm going to go watch baseball. What happens in this passage this morning is a staff becomes something so much more because Yahweh has set it apart for his purpose. It is through his touch that this staff will take on a new identity. And so it is here in this chapter, Exodus 4, that the staff is given a new name. So our actor appears a second time as a new character. We have to go just a bit beyond our passage and jump down to verse 20, Exodus 4.20. Check out its name there. So Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took what? The staff of God in his hand. He was just a staff at the beginning of chapter 4. But by the end of chapter 4, he will be the staff of God. The staff will be called by this name just one more time in the book of Exodus, but make no mistake, it is no longer a mundane object because over and over again, the Lord will say, take the staff, right? It is the instrument for God's work. It is not God. It is not magical. But God has chosen to set it apart. And is this not exactly what he does with every human being who comes under the blood of Christ, who comes to have his sin cleansed, who comes to be made a child of God? He takes our ordinariness. No, he takes our messed upness, our rebelliousness, and he sets us apart. And we become what? Not a staff of God, but a child of God, a man of God or a woman of God. We are not God, but we become the channel. We become the means. We become the instrument for the work of God. Moses is not a conjurer. He is not a magician. He's just a shepherd. And before that, he was a murderer and a runaway. But he's not a magician. He doesn't have power. He is not the sovereign. He's just the channel. In fact, we'll find by the end of the passage, there are many things that God will do, and he'll circumvent Moses, and he'll let Aaron use the staff. By the way, that's not in Disney's Prince of Egypt. That's the first of 896 discrepancies in that, book, in that movie. You can find the rest yourself. What does the Lord say to him in verse 17? With this staff, you shall do my wonders. The staff illustrates for us that God is the source. That's what this actor is teaching us. I was just a staff, but now I'm the staff. I'm the staff of God. Moses will face the mightiest nation on the face of the earth with what? A shepherd's crook in his hand. And win. Because it's just a picture that God is with him. As God just said, I am who I am, and I will be with you. And in fact, that I will phrase in almost every one of the things that God says 
uh, I am with you, I will be with you. It's got that I am phrase, but anyway, the staff here is the evidence that I am, that he is the source, that he is with. It's his presence. It's his reminder. So if through the staff of God, Moses and Aaron can, can wallop the Nile into blood, if through the staff of God, they can conjure frogs and they can transform dust into insects and they can draw thunder and hail and fire down from the sky and they can rouse an overnight storm of locusts, then what can Yahweh do through the man of God? What can Yahweh do through the woman of God, if that's what he can do through the staff of God? Answer, he can call home the lost. That's what he can do. You think, I'm just a stick. Through the woman of God, he can wash the feet of the guilty, enrich the life of the lonely. Through the man of God, he can refresh the spirit of the poor. He can convict the heart of the wayward. He can lift the burden of the ashamed. That's what he can do. Through the man of God or the woman of God. As the staff is in the hand of Moses, so is the child of God in the hand of God, right? Yahweh has no useless tools, believer. You are a tool. He has no useless tools. He has some unwilling ones. And I have been and probably will be again one of those at times. But if he is the source, then we are just the conduit. And we have such a privilege, such a privilege to humble ourselves for him, to risk ourselves for him, to give ourselves for him. If this week you are prone to forget what he can do, then remember the staff. Now, the dialogue to this point between Moses and the Lord has been driven by Yahweh's initiative and then by Moses' excuses. Moses, here still at the bush, is hesitating and questioning and, make no mistake, refusing, although his refusing is not really working. It's difficult to win an argument with God. And he has asked the Lord, we saw this last week in chapter 3, who am I? And then he has asked, and then who shall I say sent me? Now at the beginning of chapter 4, he's going to give his third excuse. What if they won't believe me? And in response to that question, Moses is given three signs. The third actor that brings to life the message the third actor that shows, not just tells, but shows the authority of Yahweh, makes three appearances. That actor is the sign, and he plays three roles. First, there is the sign of a staff changing to a serpent. First, the sign of a staff changing to a serpent, verse 3. Then he said, throw it on the ground. So Moses threw it on the ground. It became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. What do you do from um, dangerous um, snakes? You run. Um, it's a little bit funny uh, that Moses runs away. But make no mistake, Moses is not a fool. He's smart enough to understand this is a problem. And in fact, Moses' inherent reaction is a demonstration 
that this wasn't some cool trick that, you know, he came up with. All I know is I had a stick, now it's a cobra. It's just a demonstration of God's incredible power. What is the point here? What is this actor, this sign, staff changing to a serpent, showing us? Well, it's not a huge guess, really, is not Because we know that Moses reaching down and taking up the staff, grabbing it by the tail, which, by the way, is, of course, the worst way to handle poisonous snake. Such an act of faith, but demonstrates the effortlessness, demonstrates and requires trust in the Lord God. By the way, two Hebrew words here that are just interesting by their contrast. First, God says something like, grab that thing. And then uh, the narrative records, and so Moses kind of gingerly picked up that thing. That's sort of what the Hebrew says. <laughs> um, but before we make too much fun of him, I'm thinking if I'm in his shoes, man, I get it, right? But he did it. What does it mean that he could helplessly, vulnerably grab the tail of this terrible creature and have it turn back into a dull, dead stick? Well... It's not difficult to know what the serpent represents. First, in Egypt, um, we can find uh, still existing ancient writings today that will tell us the following. In Egypt, the serpent is a symbol of wisdom. In Egypt, the serpent was a symbol of healing. In Egypt, the serpent is known as Uraeus, a symbol of Uraeus, who was the patron cobra goddess of Lower Egypt. The serpent is a sign of royalty, authority, power, and sovereignty. The cobra crown, which had a hooded, reared serpent on the very front that Pharaoh would wear, was a demonstration of his royalty and authority. The serpent is also in Egypt associated with the sun god Re or Ra, depending upon who you read. What's the point? This is the actor playing out the reality, Moses, this is what Egypt is. He'll reach down and gingerly grab the tail of this thing, and it's a done deal. Just operate in faith. This is my authority. Egypt is nothing. She is nothing compared to me. But you go, well, wait a minute. There might be more to this serpent, and there is, because there's not just the power of Egypt and the human that sits on the throne, but there is the greater power standing behind that evil power, right? The taming of the serpent, that devil, the dragon from of old, the one who sits on the evil throne, Satan. The point here is that the Lord is saying, don't be afraid, Moses. Let me demonstrate to you. I'm not just going to say it. Let me show you my power. It takes great faith to grab the tail. It takes great faith to poke the hornet's nest, to expose yourself, to make yourself vulnerable. I mean, if this doesn't go well, Moses doesn't go back home to Zipporah today, and the sheep wander off. But the might of Yahweh will make Egypt bow. The might of Yahweh will make Pharaoh bow. The might of Yahweh will even make Satan bow one day. Amen? Amen. And all will serve his perfect pur purpose. And what is it in this book? It is to make his name known. Even 
as in history, Babylon and Assyria were tools in God's hands, wicked nations whom God used for his purpose. And, and the prophet said, Lord, you, you can't do that. You're holy. You, you, you can't use them. And the Lord said, I will use them and then I will punish them. Let me just share what I think is a sobering, but I think a right, a stunning and a sobering right understanding. So even Russia is in God's hands. It doesn't mean that they get a pass on the evil that they do. Oh, no, they will answer for it. Even the Communist uh, Party in China, the CCP, is under his hand today. Even the FARC militia guerrillas in Colombia killing Christians and any political dissidents are in his hand, right? Even the tyrannical Kim family in North Korea as they starve and destroy their own people by the thousands and tens of thousands through their tyrannical leadership, they are all under his authority and will answer to him one day. Well, that's the first role that this actor plays, the sign of a staff changing to a serpent, showing us his authority. Second, he plays the role of the sign of a leprous hand, the sign of a leprous hand, verse 6. The Lord furthermore said to him, put your hand into your bosom. So he put it into his bosom. He put it into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. By the way, studying that this week, I found this interesting. I have no idea what to do with it yet. Um, but the word white is not in this passage, and I think neither is the idea. It's not that this skin disease, which is probably not modern-day leprosy, but the commentaries have a great discussion about that. It is some skin condition. But the word here for like snow has the connotation not of whiteness, but of flakiness. It's a description of the skin afterwards. What you'll do with that, I don't know, but um, it's an interesting point here. Uh, the pulling out of the hand is, oh my goodness, this is not what healthy skin is supposed to look like. And there's a shock. The Lord in his mercy says, it's okay, just put it back in again. Pull it back out. What is he demonstrating? His authority here is that he is Lord over disease and Lord over healing. Jesus will prove the same, won't he? That he has such authority. Yahweh here is Lord over defilement and Lord over cleansing. It's possible here, and I don't know about this, but some have suggested this might be a picture of removing Israel from the defiling, from the defilement of the land of Egypt. Apparently, even in ancient documents, Egypt was notorious for its uncleanness. I don't know. That was new news to me. The point here, regardless, is that he is the Lord who can strike and who can heal. He is the Lord who can rescue them from their uncleanness in this place, showing his authority. Third is the sign of Nile water turning to blood. The sign of Nile water turning to blood. Nine, but if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you should take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. What is the Nile in Egypt? Answer, everything. The Nile is everything. Without Egypt, I'm sorry, without the Nile, Egypt wouldn't be Egypt. Again, there are actual references in ancient documents to the Nile being called by these titles, the father of life, the mother of all, 
Denial is uh, known in some cases as a manifestation of the god Hopi. Elsewhere, the Nile is identified with Osiris. The Nile is, is the lifeblood of Egypt. And when it overflowed its banks seasonally, what it did is it brought nutrients to enrich the soil for thousands and thousands of acres of land all around that made it incredibly fertile. And it was the boast of the nation, the Nile River was, and the fertility of this valley. And do you know what Yahweh says? Like that, I can turn it to death. I can take that which is the source of, of all life, that which is the sign of your gods, that which you worship as all wisdom and power, and I can turn it to death. Pour some Nile water on the ground, Moses, and I'll make it blood. That's what the Lord thinks of Pharaoh and his gods. There is nothing in our lives that the Lord does not have authority over. Now, the fact is, when we struggle, that may bring questions. Well, then, Lord, why? It may bring more questions than answers, but it should also bring us an encouragement, an abandonment. Okay, Lord, I don't see it and I don't understand that you are Lord even over this. It should bring relief. Lord, you have purpose even in this. It can bring us wholeness. Lord, even in this thing, in this circumstance in my day, Lord, you are here and you are Lord even over this. By the way, Yahweh here who will take life water and turn it to death blood will later in this chapter take the blood of death and make it the entryway to life. Later on the night of the Passover, he will do it again. And he will take the sign of death blood there and he will make it the entryway, the portal into life. And then, oh, the Lord Jesus Christ will take death blood, cursed blood. Why? Because when he hung on the tree, he became sin. And cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. And he hung there for you and for me. And his death blood, cursed blood became the portal of entry so that every person who now would believe can come and be washed in his blood. Ironic? Yep, perfectly so. Upside down? Yes, exactly so, because that's what God does. He's going to take death blood, and he's going to make it eternal life. He's going to take the sickness of death, and he's going to make it the washing that cleanses. I don't know, guys, if you guys ever saw, is it uh, Croc? I think that's the name of the old comic strip. And uh, it's, it's got a, it's got, um, Cavemen, do I have the right one? Uh, if not, then we'll find the right name. Anyway, the, uh, apparently, the cartoonist was a believer. One of my favorites was uh, the, the guy who's standing with his, uh, his dirty um, animal skin, because that's how the cavemen dress in that strip, um, uh, by the river, notices, uh, and he, he did this on Easter weekend, notices the river starting to run red. And he wonders what it is, and he doesn't know, and he sticks his finger in, and it's blood. Um, and it's fascinating, but the last scene doesn't need any words. He wanders in up to about this far and stands in the water, and he steps back out, and everything below is clean. Love that picture. The defiling blood is the cleansing life-giving agent through the Lord Jesus Christ. Huh. 
He can turn water life to blood death. And he, through the blood of death, can give you life and forgiveness and cleansing. Praise God. Here's the authority of Yahweh. If this week you forget what he can do, then remember the signs. Remember the signs. The fourth and final actor dramatizes the wisdom of God's plan, and he assumes two appearances. The fourth actor is the mouth. We need to read the rest of our passage to get this one this morning. Pick up with me in verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what, are you, what you are to say. But he said, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. Let me pause there with you, and then we'll read the rest. Moses, starting in verse 10, now gives his fourth excuse there at the burning bush. I'm not a man of words. That's a literal rendering of the Hebrew. I'm not a man of words, but I'm a man of heavy speech and heavy tongue. Speculation as to what this means, some would say that uh, apparently Moses was just uh, not persuasive enough, didn't think he was quick enough. Dude, I can't joust verbally with Pharaoh and with all of his, you know, high attendants in the court. I can't, I can't do that, maybe. Others have said possibly Moses has actually some sort of impediment, a stammering speech or a stuttering um, in his language. That's a possibility as well. Um, although another commentator has pointed out, uh, Moses seems to be doing just fine arguing with God at the burning bush, not at a loss for words. Others have said it's possible that after 40 years, he's lost his mastery of the Egyptian language. It's a good possibility. At the end of the day, I don't know. The Lord doesn't discount it, so it is possible that he has some actual deficits. I will say this, regardless of it, what is the point for Moses? He knows if he goes back, I can't pull this off in my power. He will have to be totally in dependence upon Yahweh. You think that was by design? Once again, regardless of Moses' concern, Yahweh answers. Regardless of the question, well, who am I? Yahweh answers, let me tell you who I am, because that's the only answer that's needed. He doesn't even address, well, that's okay, we'll work on your Egyptian on the way back, on the donkey ride back, okay? No, he says, verse 11 and 12, who has made man's mouth? Verse 11, who has made man's mouth? Verse 12, I, even I, will be with your mouth. I who am, I am with you. Same, by the way, words here, I am with your mouth. Here in verse 12. Moses, it doesn't matter to me what excuses you give me about what you can't do. Let me just tell you about what I can do. This is the wisdom of his plan. And it's the same with us today, believer. How many times have you felt that sense that God was calling and he was urging, he was commanding, and you said, I can't do it, who am I? And the Lord says, fine, I, I won't argue with you about who you are, but I will tell you who I am, and I am with you. So there it is, Moses' mouth. 
That's the first appearance of the mouth. That's the first role that he plays. He plays the role of Moses' mouth in verse 12. But Yahweh says, I'm Lord over all. The deaf and the seeing, blind and sight, hearing or deafness, all perception, all, all modes of perceptive abilities. I am Lord over all of these. I give these things. By the way, I think Jesus showed the same lordship, didn't he? As he loosed tongues and opened eyes, right? And allowed ears to be opened. He showed the same lordship in Matthew chapter 11 when he was questioned, are you the one? And he says, eh, just go back and tell him, what do you see? I mean, the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame leap. I don't know. What do you think? Maybe I'm Yahweh. That is Lord who's saying I'm God over all. Now, it's at this point that Moses finally gives up on his excuses. And what we'd love to see at this point is Moses say, okay, Lord, I'm totally in. You've answered every question. Uh, no, he kind of goes the opposite direction. Rather than giving up on his excuses and abandoning himself to the will of God, he gives up on his excuses and he drops all pretense. And he says, fine, you win, but I don't like it. Verse 13. Please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. It's a very cryptic Hebrew statement. Okay, Lord, do your will by whoever you want to do it. Kind of think Yahweh's already said by whom he wants to do it. Do you understand Moses' point? It's not unclear. Who am I going to choose? I don't know. Eeny, meeny. No, it's Moses saying, Lord, you do whatever you want to do, but just send anybody. Translation, anybody else you want to send would be really great. 14, then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. And he said, is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently, and moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I, even I, will be with your mouth. There you go. By the way, that is another I am. I am with your mouth. I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth. And I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people. He will be a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. You shall take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. This is the mouth now making his second appearance, but now not as Moses' mouth, but at this point as Aaron's mouth. Just as Moses now has expressed some unwillingness, some refusal, send somewhere else, somebody else, Yahweh now responds by saying, no, I will still send you, but he will show the wisdom of his response. He's not going to relieve Moses of his call. That's the wisdom of God, by the way. If I complain hard enough, eventually God will let me out of it. God doesn't let Moses out of it. This is the fifth time he's excused or refused, right? He says, okay, you're still going to go, but you're going to go with Aaron. What is the net effect of that? Moses will have to share the glory. He won't be the great one as he might have been. In fact, Aaron will wield the staff on many occasions. And Aaron will be the one to actually deliver the word on many occasions. Not only that, but the giving of Aaron is a bit of a mixed blessing, isn't it? Because Aaron becomes a problem 
at several big, at several, several crossroads, several big instances. You kind of scratch your head and you go, well, maybe if Aaron wasn't here, we wouldn't have this problem, but we're here in part because this is what Moses has driven the Lord to. You always have to be careful when you talk about God and a plan B. Um, I will, I'll call it uh, God's A prime, uh, plan A prime. It was his plan all along sovereignly, but he's using even Moses' um, unwillingness to bring it about, all for his purposes. So we have the mouth acting in two roles. First is Moses' mouth and then is Aaron's mouth. But what's the point with either one of them? I am with your mouth. I am with his mouth. Is it that God says, you know what, you're right, your mouth isn't good enough. Let's go get Aaron's mouth, and then Aaron's mouth, like he's super, super suave. He can totally talk Pharaoh into anything. Is that the point? Well, it kind of seems a little bit like that in 14. I know that he speaks fluently, and if that is all we had, then that might be a good argument, except that's not where the argument ends. Where does the argument end? I am with your mouth and his mouth. What's the point? The wisdom of God's plan does not depend, hinge, or fall because of Moses' inability. The wisdom of God's plan does not depend, hinge, or rise upon Aaron's ability. What does it hinge on? The sovereignty and wisdom of God himself. I am with your mouth, and that is very good news. Already the Lord had, in fact, purposed this. In 14, is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently. Moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. He is already on his way. How did God know? Because he's God. Uh, by the way, it's pretty cool. Take a look at verse 27. You'll notice there's a couple places they're not in exact chronological order. Verse 27, now the Lord said to Aaron, go to meet Moses in the wilderness. We're to understand that that happened earlier. Why? Because Aaron's in Egypt and Moses is a long ways away at Mount Sinai. So as Moses meets the bush and argues with Yahweh, God has already sent Aaron because he knows that Moses is going to argue and he's going to provide Aaron to come to him. All in his perfect timing, right? All in his perfect will. He's going to meet him there at the mountain. All in his plan and his providence and his orchestration. Why? Because he's wise. If this week you forget what he can do, then remember the mouth. My mouth is often not nearly as wise as it could be or should be. But he is with the mouth. He is working his plan. And it is not Moses' mouth or Aaron's mouth. It is his being with that's critical. It is his message, his presence, his mouth, his plan that he is working out. And that's where we can rest. We should see all of it in our passage this morning as these four actors have acted it out. Deliverance and authority and wisdom and even the source as reminders of what he can do. And if he is wise and he is sovereign and he transforms, then he being the source can even use willing hands and willing mouths and willing servants.
Stand with me. Let's close in prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning that you are so good in your sovereignty, good to provide where we fall short, good to go ahead where we can't see, good to fill in gaps where we're not nearly enough, and good to remind us even in our perceived strengths that it does not even depend upon this, but it is you, I am, who is with us. We thank you, Lord, for what you can do. We ask today that you would help us remember who you are and what you can do this week. Use us, Lord, um, as your servants, and thank you most of all for your incredible grace towards us. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.